Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, listeners. My name is Billy B.J. Jones. I'm an author and host of this segment of B.J. Speaks, a conversation with, right here on Everyday Folks Radio. This podcast celebrates amazing authors, creatives, individuals who are doing or contributing extraordinary things in our lives. If at any time during this live podcast you'd like to speak to me or our esteemed guest, please call in at 347 539-5372. Again, that call in is 347-539-5372. And if you're a little shy and you prefer to send your messages or questions or comments via email, you may do so at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Again, that is everydayfolks with an S, listen at gmail.com. And you can also go to my Instagram page, where I have a nice feed and a general DM, where you can also send your questions, comments, and requests as well. Today, it is with great pleasure that I introduce my dear colleague and fellow author and and historian, Cesar Alejandro Becerra. Cesar A. Becerra is a South Florida historian who's taken part in chronicling and sharing the stories of the region for more than two decades. He is the author of half a dozen books, ranging from hiking the Appalachian Trail to the logging history of the Big Cypress Preserve. Caesar is an avid explorer who drove through all 50 states, listen to that, all 50 states, in a one-year, round, in a one-year road trip to rediscover America um, for the Travel Channel. He has hiked the 2,160-mile Appalachian Trail from Maine to Georgia in 388 days through 14 states and four seasons. Caesar is former publisher of the Everglade Magazine, an award-winning publication printed during Everglades National Park's 50th anniversary. He has walked, hiked, slogged, canoed, kayaked, airboated, and swamp buggy all across the Everglades. In 1997, the Miami Herald named him an Everglades evangelist. What a title. Caesar's love for the past and sense of adventure is where his two worlds unite. He has a penchant for hidden history and knows no boundaries or distances when it comes to searching for it. And I also have to share this, folks. I'm super excited to have him here with me today because my dear friend is releasing his next forthcoming work, Orange Blossom 2.0. And he's here tonight to talk about it. It's a great pleasure that I welcome you back to Everyday Folks Radio, my dear friend and brother, Cesar A. Becerra. How are you today, sir? I'm wonderful, Billy. Boy, what an honor it is to be back. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm just so happy to be on this show. Uh, you are the first true comprehensive show where this subject is going to be discuss, uh, discussed and more. You know, so I am really excited to slow down and share and really uh, share something special with you tonight. And we're very delighted. I, and I have to share it with our listeners. The last time Caesar was with us on our live podcast, because we do lots of live podcasts here, folks. So, yes, sometimes some of the sound may be a little intermittent, but we make it work. He was here August 21st, 2016. 
nearly five years ago, in the early days of Everyday Folks. And then you were working on some incredible stuff. So now I have to ask the, the, the golden question. What brings you to Orange Blossom 2.0, which I am super delighted as a Miami native to be able to, I, I'm, I'm a history buff as well. I love knowing about my, my human, the human condition, our culture, especially our locale where we live. So what, what, what encouraged you to write this particular work, Orange Blossom 2.0? There are many different reasons, but the, probably the biggest one is something that I know going through what we went through last year is basically mm -hmm. making sure that you're seen mm -hmm. and that people are seen and that people's impact into our world, our culture, our city is recognized. And, and there's a lot of reason why I named it Orange Boston 2.0, but it really comes down to there's a family and then particularly a lady Mm -hmm. whose work has been not only ignored, but really marginalized. And that's just not cool. I know cool is not a historical <laughs> term, but to me it isn't. Um, but the reason that Orange Blossom 2.0 is associated with a wonderful woman you're going to hear tonight called Mary Brickle is that, you know, you can take your head and just go everywhere, you know, bang it up against the wall, all you can on the internet, on Siri, mm -hmm. on, on Wikipedia. It's very hard to find the story I'm about to tell you tonight because the romantic version of the birth of Miami goes that Julia Tuttle sent a bouquet of orange blossoms to the winter freezes of 1894 and 1895 to mm -hmm. and it lured him to Miami. Stop period, stop, and that's about it. Now, there's different variations, but basically it's the orange blossom myth because, mm -hmm. uh, well, the more we dig, Billy, the more we dig, we, we punch some pretty, not just me, but we, we, historians have punched some pretty big holes in this story. And the interesting thing is the, the real story is far more interesting. Don't get me wrong. Orange blossom myth is a great story. It's very romantic. Mm -hmm. really. But, boy, when you hear this one, you, you, you are you know, just like hold on to your seat because it's probably the most complex but really interesting story. And I have actually gone back to college. I feel like mm -hmm. I've gotten a master's degree after <laughs> writing this book. Now, I noticed I said writing this book. I, I kind of knew all this stuff before. Right. But when you go ahead and write it and you have to be dead on, especially when you're dealing with this kind of, live wire TNT, you know, when you start re rewriting history or you start taking a, a needle and poke the balloon and, uh, you know, that's been for years, you got to be very careful. And in that careful, I, I've, I've gotten to be kind of, I, I can't not be an expert now on Mary Brickle or even Julia Tuttle in a way, or mm -hmm. the birth of Miami. And that's important to know that I'm not saying I'm an expert in Miami history. In fact, I'm actually not an expert in Miami history. A lot of my background is in the Everglades. But mm -hmm. I have been this year now focused on the origin story of Miami, and I think I can consider myself one of the experts on the origin story, or at least I can definitely go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a lot of people about how it went down. Right, right. Cesar, I have to share this. I, I yeah. took a, a tour five uh, years ago, right after our, your podcast, to be exact, I took my college students on a tour of the Stranahan House in, in, in Fort Lauderdale, Las Olas. 
And during the tour, you know, I'm fascinated with all types of spaces, abandoned or inhabited or preserved. And this one, of course, folks, for those of you who are not familiar with South Florida's preserve. During the tour, part of Mary Brickle's life story, she's part of the storyline of the Stranahans as well. And that particular storyline is quite fascinating, actually, because people, you have to understand, Miami was not the Miami we see today. So what you see on television or on Bravo or wherever else there may be stuff, it was not the Miami of the past, but it was a very thrive. It was a, it was a great space and land of potential, right? And so in that particular story, I learned that Mary Brickle actually was, gave money to the Stranahans who, who, who came down as well from the north to set up a trading post. They wanted to do their work out by the beaches where she owned some of that land, if I'm not mistaken, some of the land out there. Or maybe I got the story wrong because sometimes people confuse her story with Julia Tuttle. Have you heard a similar story like that perhaps about her? Because I thought it was so fascinating that it came up in the Stranahan tour. Well, before I get to why I'm smiling so much, and I know people can't see that I'm smiling, uh, (laughs) I want to congratulate you, Billy. You know, not a lot of people even know the Stranahan house exists, the Stranahan store, the Stranahan family. Um, and not a lot of, and then even less people know that Mary Brickle has anything to do with uh, much of Fort Lauderdale, although that's changing rapidly. Right. Um, I, I, you know, so let me start with a, the first bomb of this broadcast. Mary Brickle, at a time where women could not vote, couldn't really do a lot of things, mm-hmm. uh, owned before the railroad gets to Miami in excess of 6,000 acres of land now that's not a typo billy that's not that would you mean wow. hundred six thousand acres wow. of land, and two thousand of which mm-hmm. is was in fort lauderdale just so you know mm-hmm. so she was the major landowner of fort lauderdale and is considered the mother of fort lauderdale mm-hmm. and a couple in fact i was in not the stranahan house but the historical society uh in the old hotel in town mm-hmm. and book section, I always now peruse books. I go straight to the index and see if Mary Brickle's in it. Mary Brickle's on like six of the books there. Now, 10 years ago, hard-pressed to find Mary anywhere. But yes, by the way, Mary knew the Stranahans very well. Okay? Mm-hmm. Especially Miss Stranahan. Mrs. Stranahan. And actually, they wrote a lot of letters, and one of their letters is cited in my book. In fact, oh, wow. the letter citing uh, still has a lot uh, you know, room to go to, to really get into the, is she really mean? But I surmise in one particular letter that she is taking over some of the tax costs and negotiating with Ms. Stranahan to make sure that these taxes are taken care of so that these particular residents wouldn't be kicked out of their land. And I believe those residents were African-Americans. And we're mm-hmm. going to get to that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But there yeah. are letters from, uh, you know, both of them back and forth mm-hmm. about Fort Lauderdale, early for Fort Lauderdale. Uh, Mary Brickle, by the way, gets sued later on in life uh, by the city of Fort Lauderdale. And you know that adage, you're, not, you're nobody until you get sued. Well, Mary Brickle fought the suit to the Supreme Court of Florida. But wow. one of the fascinating things that happened when it got to the Supreme Court of Florida and Frank Stranahan was, you know, deposed and, and, and Ingram, James mm-hmm. Ingram, Flagler. James Ingram, right yeah. When they asked him, tell us about the early days of Miami and, uh, you know, tell us about you, you know, having negotiations with, with Mr. William Brickle. Mm-hmm. And, and right at the William Brickle, he, he cuts the, 
you know, the prosecutor obviously, well, hold on. I, I actually dealt with Mary Brickle much more than I did William. Fascinates mm. moment in a lawsuit that probably wow. doesn't really, you know, mean a hill of beans in many respects. But we are finding now that, and listen up, folks, on history, once you know where to look, mm-hmm. you can laser in and figure out why someone has been forgotten. <laughs> and you can find them. Because they're not really forgotten. Politics, jealousy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. money, social status, everything right. is mixed, you know. But anyhow. And, you're right. <laughs> And let's add, let's also add to that. For those of you who are not familiar with South Florida or Miami, it doesn't, if you are in the the downtown district or on one of our major thoroughfares, you're likely to see the Brickle name. And so I tell many of my, my, my friends, family, and of course, students, I said, do you know the history of the locale in which you're in? And that fascinates me, Caesar, because your entire career has been focused or it revolves around Florida history in some regards. And I'm so fascinated by that. So what spawned that? Why did you consider to keep Florida history as your focal point? Because it's taken you from, you know, if we go before Orange Blossom 2.0, I remember when you were working down um, with Homestead, you were actually looking, you had a a book then, we had you on the show then to talk about, as well as you looked at the Everglades. So why Florida history? Why is that so important to you? So that comes about with a combination of my mother and father loving to take me to museums and always mm-hmm. having national graphics at the house. Um, and in fact, interestingly enough, right after I get taken in by history by my fifth grade teacher, Rita Collard, who I'm still hmm. in touch with on Facebook, by the way. I'm oh, that's great. That's great. My fifth grade teacher. She was such a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. The story, I would listen to him and I'd say, that's a great story, but that can't be true. And later on, when I found that they were true, I'm like, I can't believe that's true. And so, but I will say interesting about this. uh, One of the early moments go from being inspired by Mm -hmm. storytelling to going out and seeing some of these sites actually Mm -hmm. took place with another teacher at Cyprus named Tony Moore and my brother, Carlos Becerra. We took an interesting trip around Mm -hmm. downtown, a major key. I still have these, you know those 1980s kind of square photos with mm-hmm, the mm-hmm, round right? Head? Yeah, I still have a set of those. We took photos of, of the Barnacle and the Wagner House and you know the old Julia Tuttle's old you know slave quarters of, of downtown Miami. All these things. So my brother was actually there on one of the first trips that really this stuff starts seeping in, and he remembers that very well. Um, and but you know, it it's just that I grew up. Quickly after Westchester, we moved mm-hmm. to cookie cutter Kendall, I like to say. <laughs> you know, the houses all look alike and this and that. And when I was 16, I went back to uh, an art festival in the Grove, the Coconut Grove Art Festival. You probably know about it, and everybody mm-hmm. knows about mm-hmm. it. It's right, it's still around. Oh, yeah. In between two booths, there was a, enough space to walk through, and there was a sign that said, Free house tours today. And I didn't know mm-hmm. what house they were talking about. So I went back there, and mm-hmm. lo and behold, it was the Barnacle. We went on a fifth-grade field trip, and everything came back. Like, it hit me by osmosis. Like, man, I remember this house. It was cool. And compared to my house and Kendall, this was like a unique house. 
I never, yeah. you know, I mean, I'd seen it in fifth grade, but I was running my mouth too much. That's another story. Now I'm paid <laughs> to run my mouth. But anyway, uh, imagine that, Billy. There were times that we were put in trouble for running our mouth. But anyway, uh, when I got back there, it just, it was just amazing. Now, an equally small sign on the way out said, volunteer guides wanted, and I almost didn't call it, Billy. I almost didn't call it. But I said, oh. I said a 16-year-old take care of this gorgeous mm-hmm. house. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I became his guide at the Barnacle State Historic Site. And that led me on a career of different, I've worked at seven different historic sites in South Florida. So the Barnacle was key. Fifth grade was key. My brother's first trip with him in downtown with Ms. Tony Moore was key. All these things. But basically, uh, elementary school is when I got kind of a little peak. And by the way, that mm-hmm. not all teachers were equipped with a love of history like Ms. Rita Collard was, by the way. Mm-hmm. Right. All we, I was just lucky that her father was really big on history, and you know they went around and they they went to these places. So, had that not happened, I don't know. I I, I definitely would not have had it, uh, you know, eke into my veins so so deeply. <laughs> and folks, you're listening live to Caesar A. Becerra historian and author of the forthcoming work, Orange Blossom 2.0. If you'd like to speak to us during this live podcast, you can call us at 347-539-5372. Again, that number is 347-539-5372. And I see that some of you are not shy. My inbox is lighting up, Caesar, so we're getting some questions and comments in here. But you may still send those messages via email at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com or on my Instagram at drbillyjones, which I don't think I gave at the very beginning, but that's okay. (laughs) And so, Caesar, I got a question. And this one actually came in from James. Let's take one of our early questions. I think you'll like this one. He writes, great show, by the way. Congratulations on your book. Many people only know Mary's name as a street name or location in Miami. Thanks, Caesar, for celebrating her story. Did, Brick, did the Brickles affiliate with other prominent names in Florida history beyond Julia Tuttle? Ah, wow. Well, he has touched on a very interesting part yeah. of the mystery. The Brickles were very private, very mm-hmm. quiet, not so out in the public eye, not social, you know. In fact, in social media, they probably would have lost that you know, in today's world, you know, right, and that's right. part of the problem. They never joined history clubs and they were kind of, you know, to themselves, you know, they let their land and their, their mystery kind of speak. And that's part of the problem. I mean, people ran with this story of, you know, not necessarily knowing them very well and right. they don't fill in the blanks. And that is part of many different reasons why mm-hmm. you haven't heard, of, heard about them. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they weren't published in the Herald or in the Metropolis with certain issues, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. land deals, and Mary once wrote a very famous uh, letter in the Miami Herald. But by and far, they were not out there. The daughters and sons a little more, but William and Mary were kind of mysterious. Um, and, and so much so that many historians for many years said there's never been a photo taken of Mary Brickle. That was the go-to kind of. Oh wow! And then soon thereafter, he was at. Well, she was she was too ugly, or she was too shy, or cantankerous. She didn't want her. That was not the case. We just we just hadn't found a photo. Now we found three photos, and I surmise three. slowly wow. there will be others. There are hmm. four 
some photos of William Brickle. Uh, but you think about it, these are powerful people, seven photos only in all all the history. Um, so that's part of it. Um, but they, they, they took a long journey in life. They were really into adventure on a level that is just almost insanity. For example, William Brickle gets his start in Steubenville, Ohio, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in the in the twenties, he hears that call, eighteen forty nine, the gold mm-hmm. rush. He takes on a five to seven months. We don't know exactly, but at least five, no more than like seven month trip from Steubenville, Ohio to California. Can you imagine that right. today? Right. Leaving uh, yeah. <laughs> on a trip for five to seven months, getting over to the gold rush, uh, and and he we believe he made a little bit of money, not a mess, because if mm-hmm. he didn't make a mess, he wouldn't have done the second brash thing in life. He got on a boat and then went to Australia's gold rush in 1852. Now, let me pause here and tell you how dangerous the world was getting on a sail ship in 1852. And, and uh, just before okay. that, Caesar, just before yeah. that, I got to share, even for the Brickles to get down to South Florida, right? I mean, folks, you know, hurricanes, things, nature was still happening, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah. These things were still going on. So it was, we, we look at the Western expansion. When I read great authors such as Willa Cather, old pioneer, and read her in, as an undergrad in college, and I was so excited about like Western expansion and the conflict of nature was there. I mean, folks, it was still happening down here too. And what you're alluding to here is, is spot on. People were really adventurous and risking their lives for the opportunities that we now all embrace. Please continue. Or, or Billy, there was just no other way to get around the world. You had yeah, to. there was only no right, right. You got to do what you have to do, right? Yeah, yeah. And so there's two incredible researchers in Australia, Denise McMahon and Christine Wilde, that wrote okay. about American and Canadian adventures that went to go after gold, and one of which was mm-hmm. William Brick. And mm. we learned from a boat back then it was so insane. Mm-hmm. He did this breakdown in an 18-month span of time. It was like, you know, 11 ships were lost forever. 24 would come into ports with big problems. Uh, others, you know, all this crazy numbers. You're like, what? And, and it was really kind of like suicidal to go anywhere, if you saw the statistics that they have found. Anyway, he gets to Australia, and that's where he meets Mary Brigham. Now, Mary's from England. Interesting. We're going to come back to that later. Yeah. Founding Father of Miami is from England, by the way. We have English <laughs> tentacles yeah. to Miami. Yeah. She comes to Australia at age three with her family, meets William in her late teens, early 20s, in a little place called Albury. Um, and, uh, and that's where they, 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 they start life. They get married in Melbourne and then take off, are you ready for this, on an 85-day trip to New York. And help people understand what that's like. You say 85-day trip, 85-day trip to New York. So was that by that's car, right. by plane? You know, that folks would know what that was by, like. That's by boat first from Australia, <laughs> from Melbourne to California yeah. on one boat, on another boat from California to the Isthmus of Panama with no canal. There was a little, like, rickety wow. uh, railroad to another boat on the other side, uh, and then over to New York. So 85 days, Billy. Ooh. I mean, so that is, but it's also fascinating because it also shows the the, the spirit of, you know, our human commitment when we want to do something. And I, I have to say, it's no different than what I see in scientists, right? You have to have that curiosity 
and that desire, that that need, whether it be for, for personal reasons or for a greater cause, there has to be some kind of intrinsic drive to make individuals make those kinds of commitments. And whoever thought, yes, some may have done it for, you know, for fame, but also others did it for other causes. Whoever thought that here we are today talking about these stories of individuals who are no longer among us, at least in the physical sense. And so it's kind of neat now, because now when you get to Mary Brickle, the Brickle family, well, he, she and her, and her husband, they had an incredible um, in, um, influence, right, and support in some ways. But did they have obstacles, Caesar? Were there some obstacles upon their arrival here to a before Miami or now what we call city of Miami? Were there any obstacles that they endured? I, I think the only obstacle would have been uh, boredom in terms of, you know, when they get yeah. to the United States, with what they made with what William Brickle made a lot mm. of money during the gold rush of, of California, not in digging the gold, but surrounding and supporting the infrastructure of gold in a hotel, a commissary, you okay. know, and a, right. and a coach service. But when he got to the United States, they kind of chilled out in, in Cleveland over five years, thinking about where they're going to, what they're going to do next, where they're going to invest all this money. And mm-hmm. after crossing America with the gold rush, then going to Australia, and uh, Mary growing up in a very interesting continent, they were just not going to sit around. They, they had right. one more big adventure in them, and that was Florida. So they mm-hmm. came down to Florida by the early 1870s, 1871 particularly, and they were in the last what we call final frontier. We had already crossed America. We had already mapped out everything. And still there were parts inside the Everglades that, that, that white men had never, black men had never even set foot in. So wow. a very different, you know, uh, peninsula, a, a, a place is so foreign. But to the Brickles, I think it was just the next event. They had one more big adventure left in them. And they were pioneers in a big way, although, you know, you can also say pioneers is a loaded term. Uh, a great friend of mine, John, uh, Professor John Bailey from FIU, uh, takes no uh, offense to the pioneer term. There was certainly Seminoles and Tequestas and Paleolithic Indians before them. But to the, to the quote-unquote pioneers of their time, they were pretty radical. I mean, they were out here for 20 years before the railroad would finally get here. I mean, this, right. is, this is a really raw environment. Uh, you know, there's no air conditioning. There's right. no uh, mosquitoes. Been in, <laughs> humidity. You know, yeah, humidity. Uh, it was raw, raw country. Uh, yes, they weren't alone. There were other pioneers right. in the area. There were other people. But uh, I, I love a famous quote from a from a guy who actually came down with Mr. Brickle himself, Thomas Thorpe, who was on the very boat that brought down. And he said, in the old days, you to count the people, it would take you two days to find mm-hmm. them and count them. And when you finally rounded them up, it would be like 11 people. But it take two days to go find them, to count them. So wow. sparse, but spread out, but, you know, not just, you know, everybody was in just in one place. It was a very lonely uh, existence. And... Uh, I think some people have criticized the Brickles a little bit because a lot of their, you know, they have a lot, a lot of daughters to bring a, you know, their daughters into a, uh, an environment right, that's just right. so raw, and so uh, I'm not saying women can't do anything. I'm saying, of course, of they, course, right? They said, you know, uh, you know, here's a place that had no social strata for years, right? And right. you're bringing, you know, and and their sons as well, but it, it's. That's a lot on a family, let me tell you. Although you could say, well, on the other hand, they got to play in this paradise, you know, uh, of right. Eden. For a lot of people, Florida 
even though we, we harp on the mosquitoes and the heat and the gator for right, right. a lot of early comers, they were really, really loved this exotic place that right. dipped into the tropics. Very you know? green. There's a lot of green yeah. here. So, can you imagine? And, and I have to, I have to say this too. It's, it's, it's fascinating because that's one of the things I love about South Florida. It's the tropical climate, the green. I love being able to see. I'm where I'm seated right now, folks. Folks can't see this at, since we're talking, but I'm looking out to my backyard and I love seeing vegetation, and I enjoy that. But imagine what what the, what the brickles saw, right? And you write <laughs> in your writing, by the way. You know, William, William and Mary, they had an incredible life and an, an, an adventurous life. But after his passing, she still had to carry things on. And, and so yeah. there's some interesting things that I've, I've learned about her, courtesy of you, of course, about the, you know, her business savviness and her business nature. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm also smiling because in the very <laughs> few places that, the Brickles are given credit for anything. Mm-hmm. And it's very few times. I don't know if you know where to look more. But on those times, the credit goes to William because in the old days, you gave credit to the husband. Right. What we're finding out now is that Mary not only had a lot to do with that success, but William dies pretty early on in the journey of Miami's yeah. birth. You know, Miami was born in 1896. Mm-hmm. William mm-hmm. passed away by 1908. So Mary takes all that still lived till 1922, and that was a, was a very important, 1908 to 22 was an explosion of stuff on the Brickell lands, and Mary had that in her grasp. We also believe that one of the reasons that William Brickell signed all this land into Mary's name, remember earlier I said Mary had six thousand right, acres? you did. Not mm-hmm. William. I mean, by marriage, yes, but he put all the land in her name. Now, I believe in her name, right. Had, I think I he that. did that because he felt he was older, but also that I think he had a hunch that she was better at business than he was. There were a couple of times where William Brickle lost his stack, and that could mm-hmm. be a problem. He had a feud mm-hmm. with Flagler, feud with uh, Julia Tuttle's father, very important and interesting. If you're looking at these two feuds, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. understand issues with who gets credit, and <laughs> the story goes to the victor. So, the, you know, William was kind of a little bit of a hothead, and so I think Mary was much more, you know, methodical and much more dip- diplomatic, uh, but she was very savvy. Uh, in fact, in an early uh, memoir by one of the earliest mayors of Miami, John Sewell, uh, he lists all the business men in Miami, and on that list there's only two women, Julia Tuttle and Mary Brickle. Wow. And, wow. But if you look deeper than that, Julia Tuttle had a man representing her selling the land, but not Mary Brickle. Mary sold her own land. So Mary is also the first female real estate agent. And let me tell you, there's a lot of female real estate agents today in Miami. If you look through magazines, whatever, you get yeah. 10 times the donut's going to be a female. So Mary is our first real estate agent, female real estate agent. And she handled her own deals, her own land deals, which is fascinating. Wow. She actually held people like Flagler to an interesting squirrely word that he had amongst them. You know, as Flagler came down the state, uh, these landowners would say, all right, listen, we're going to give you the right of way. We'll sell you our land. We'll give you some of our land, but you have to build a station. And Flagler right. said, oh, of course, I'll, uh, of course I'll build a station. But as uh, historian Seth Branson noted, that it didn't mean that he would stop the train there. 
you build a station, <laughs> keep going. So right. Really to actually hold yeah, them to that. Spots. So in Fort Lauderdale, not only are you going to stop, but you're going to right. plan out a city. You're going to do a town. Is all he, she was the only one to keep him to his little sneaky word. But anyhow, um, um, she was just definitely wore the pants in the family, as Dr. Paul George likes to say. Um, you know, she was a very powerful, uh, you know, yeah. And later on, I'll read you a little bit of something about what else uh, is interesting about her and the money, et cetera. <laughs> and folks, you're listening live to Cesar A. Becerra, historian and author of Orange Blossom 2.0. When this book comes out, folks, you have to get it. And let me tell you where you can start by following. I have to give a props to a dear colleague of ours, Caesar, who is who's another podcaster who's doing amazing things. And I, I, I met her and connected with her very recently. Um, and that is Mia with South Florida Weird. Folks, you need to follow this podcast. It is super awesome. And also, this incredible um, PR team is also, under the South Florida Weird team, is also supporting and, 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 and promoting this Orange Blossom work. So go right now. Go on Google and check it out. And subscribe, of course. And shout out to our friends at South Florida Podcast. And I also want to share, see that we're getting a lot of questions now. So we're going to have to do things a little differently today than we normally do on the show. Because I normally like, you're so fascinating. So I'd love to hear you talk because you're a storyteller. And so you tell those stories. But I do know that there's some folks, the lines are lighting up over here with email. Um, there's a couple lines on the, on, the, on the switchboard, which I want to get to. And there are quite a few emails here. So we're going to do our best to try to get to as many questions as we can, folks. So we're going to start with this, Caesar. So let's, let's do a little remix of our schedule. Why don't you provide us a little reading, a very brief reading of your work? I think it would be super okay. fascinating for folks to hear your story. And let me share, folks. I, I'm biased. Caesar's amazing, okay? But he's also, he has a way of really making the story um, not only our own, but his own. Almost as if he's sitting by, we're sitting in, our, in a home or by the campfire. He has a way of transporting us back to that time and being in the moment. So if you would just give us a little glimpse of what, your, of what Orange Blossom 2.0 will be providing, that would be super awesome. Absolutely. I'm going to read you a little bit from Chapter 17, which is called Bronze okay. ATM. Bronze ATM. Um, and, and by the way, the first version of the book is going to be a, uh, an audio version that is on SoFloWeird.com. Oh, S- yeah. <laughs> so the first version. And this is a, an interesting one. So here we go. Here we go. If you ask me, the money is in the casket. If it's not in the casket, well, it was once in the casket. Fanny knew it. So does Mrs. B. Not that Miss B. The other Miss B. Actually, by now, come to think of it, all the Mrs. B's know. Let me slow down. I'm getting ahead of myself. It is my educated guess that inside a rather expensive, not bronze-plated or bronze-stained, but a solid bronze cassette, there is a large sum of money. There, that's better. I want to be accurate. After all, we're talking about one or two million dollars. The casket may not be bronze anymore. See, it was switched for some reason when the body was moved from the ground of the mausoleum. There also may not be any more money anymore, or not as much money. And the casket was switched yet again when the body was moved from the mausoleum to Woodlawn Cemetery alongside the Tamimi Trail. Well, if the money isn't in there, then Mrs. Brickle, Mrs. B. Brickle, thinks there's a slight possibility with some of that forensic fanciness you sometimes see on CSI Miami, perhaps some sort of residue 
it, at the very least, can show that the money was once there to begin with. When Mary Brickle died in 1922, she did so quietly, the passing, that is. If you ask me, she was buried twice that day, once in the ground and once six pages in, as in one of the newspapers six pages in. If you wanted to count each time she was buried, that would have to be four times, three times in a final resting, ta- resting place and the affirmation burial in the newspaper. Julia Tuttle's passing warranted front page news. William, you got it, right smack in the middle, page one, above, below the fold. But not for Mary, even though she technically owned the land, all of it, long before William's death, she was all but forgotten in the news, but not in the florist shops. Coverage of the details of her funeral stated that the florist shops were cleared out, gutted, not a petal left to buy. Nearly a hundred years later, there's a twist to this story, as there always is a hundred years later, though I don't always get why you have a hundred years for good stuff to come out or a mystery to be solved, but there you have it. As far as mysteries are concerned, this is not up there with who sank the USS Maine or where Jimmy Hoffa's body is, though the Smithsonian Magazine and National Geographic both did a 100-year anniversary research with the new technology to ascertain if they could once and for all who sunk the Maine and subsequently got us into a war with Spain. As for Jimmy Hoffa, well, <laughs> the last I heard, he's popping up somewhere every month. A bit more frequency, new clues or theories of Amelia Earhart's last known location, but with Mary Brickle, no one seemed to care initially. It turns out, actually, that someone did, and it was not too long after her passing, a handwritten letter I read in Beaufort, South Carolina, just at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, has opened up a whole new line of thinking on a sliver of a nuance concerning the Brickles, namely, what did Mary do with all that money? Anyway, that's a little sliver of Ooh, it was good. chapter. I think it's one of the chapters that is important because, let's face it, we've gone from the Brickles being quiet, kind of private, to right. Brickle today being flashy and fun and expensive and right. booming, right? This is very and, you know, today people care a lot about money. I mean, it's not that they didn't care a lot about money back then, but one way to kind of bring people into, as I like to do, sometimes history is hard to get people, and not everybody. If you love history, you're going to be into it. But if you don't, I guess, you know, one way to do is talk about the money. And, and you have to talk about the money with the Brickles because there was a lot of it. So this, is, this gets into a, a, an interesting letter that, that a family member wrote of a theory that they had of what, Mary did with all that money. This is one of their own family members saying, look, <laughs> we want to just be sure that if ever pops up, uh, we want our cut. <laughs> right, right. And, but, and, and Caesar, you know, I have to share, that was, that was so much fun, and it was so you, by the way, your voice. You have such awesome. perspective. You bring such perspective, and you make me excited and, and want to hear more. So, folks, you need to go right now and go to So Flow Weird Show Podcast. In, in description, the link is, is embedded in the description of this podcast. If you visit everydayfolksradio.com, 
And also, there are pre-orders of Orange Blossom 2.0. You need to get a copy. I know I'm ordering mine and more copies of, of mine for, for my friends and family and all of my history colleagues. You hear that at Broward College? Several of you are getting copies, too. But Caesar, I have to share. What I thought was most unique about that is, is this. You give life to a story that was, that is all, that's not been told and in many cases forgotten. And for that, you're saluted. You got a question coming in from Denver who wants to know this. Listen to this. What defines a historian? To me, a historian is someone who studies and teaches history. I'm sure there's more. What do you think? Wow. Um, historian feels the history. A historian is haunted by history. Uh, a historian has the the very right to, to get it right and, and deliver it no matter who it kind of harms later, you know? Mm-hmm. Change mm-hmm. is very important. Uh, in fact, I even say very boldly in this, in this book that, you know, there is, we haven't gotten to the end of everything we've learned about the Brickles and the end of everything we haven't learned about Julia Tuttle. There still is more. Uh, yeah. Even in the collection, yeah. you know of Hey, no one's been through it all. I certainly haven't. I've been in front of it all, but I haven't, you know, to pierce it. I mean, this chapter is just looking into the tentacles and pathways from one letter and answering a lot of questions that people had about Mary, and it answers the questions why the Brickle Mansion was completely almost torn apart even right. before the record all gets there, people were all looking for this money. Uh, we know that Mary Brickle had a penchant at tough times, not even at tough times, regular times, to hand out wads of cash to people that were hurting, to African Americans. Yeah. By the way, uh, right. after her passing, there was a very, very uh, beautiful uh, article that, that a tribute. Uh, right, there was a tribute to her in one of the periodicals. Yeah. Right members of the African-American community poured their heart and soul out to to Mary Brickle. Um, So we know that there were times where, well, if we know that, then people obviously like, well, that means it's not in the bank. So people are always thinking it had to be in the house. But now we know from this letter from Fanny talking about her husband, Charles, son of of William and Mary, that, that he is saying clearly, Mary put in a dollar into the bank, but for every dollar she put in, she kept the dollar. Mm. <laughs> wow. So, you know, and if she's worth $2 million at the end of her life, well, it's $2 million somewhere, and uh, it's never been found. Never wow. been found, just so you know. And we've got a couple more questions coming in, Caesar. Let's take one sure. from, the, from the switchboard. Hello, caller. You're live on BJ Speaks, a conversation with Caesar A. Becerra. Hello. All right. Maybe the caller is gone, but my inbox is not. I have another coming in here, and, and, and here's something that, came, that I wanted to ask you earlier, but you kind of you, you start talking about it very nicely, which is the idea of writing and, and researching, right, especially um, historical nonfiction, because the process is very different. Could you speak a little, dip, a little bit about your, your research and writing process? Because in order to, A, you've you got to sift through these, these artifacts, right, to see these things and, and to gain this story. But at some point, you bring it together. Can you talk a little bit about that process? 
Wow. Um, yes, a lot. I mean, I'll talk a little bit. I could talk a lot about it. But this uh, the arc of this story, for me to write it, I had to live through. That's different than researching for a right. amount of time. I had to live through 25 years of this journey. Where oh, I actually wow. sometimes embedded into the journey of how to deal with this information. Mm-hmm. I was very close to certain historians that some have passed on, etc., that uh, sometimes very positively, sometimes very negatively deal with this Brickle question. But 25 years ago, I curated an exhibit on Mary Brickle items that were in the Stan Cooper collection that were brought to light by Carmen Petsoulis, the lady who found the first photo of Mary. Um, but, you know, the book was written probably, well, it was written this year. I mean, it took like two or three months, but it took 25 years to, you know, form it in my mind and, and deal with a lot of stuff, mixing actual documents that I know, I cite them, etc. And in this book, it's different. There's no index. There's no citing at the end of the book. I cite the actual documents during the writing. I feel that this is so important that I had to cite it within. And, and it's a little different. I will add it admit, even my editor said, you really want to keep these cited? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I do. And they're not, the most important ones are cited within the actual sentence so that people know exactly where I got that information when I'm dropping it. Some of it is so incendiary that I have to make sure that they know that I don't, you know, I don't want them later to have to kind of trudge through the back of the book. I'm not trying to hide anything, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which is, you know, Julia Tuttle, unfortunately, was in debt to Henry Flagler at levels of $2.5 million of today's money, back then around 80000 But for Julia Tuttle to be in debt with Flagler, and we have three Flagler letters that were found by Beth Brickell, an author that wrote a book on Mary and William Brickell, in the History of Miami. We have letters now of, of Flagler signing notes, backing up loans that Julia Tuttle needed to buy more land. But on three occasions, Flagler is telling her, I am not going to, you cannot borrow any more, I cannot endorse any of these notes. Oh, and the next one would be, as long as this is the last one, I'll endorse it, but that's it. And then in the end, he had to say, that's all. He had to actually take land back from her because she owed him so much money. This is important to know exactly where those letters are when I'm writing because, you know, when you hear Julia Tuttle, and by the way, I'm not removing the, the title Mother of Miami. I'm simply, simply saying that there's room for a co-mother status. But Julia Tuttle... Every time you hear about her, it says, comma, successful businesswoman. And if it doesn't say successful businesswoman, it says mother of of Miami. And you think, well, she had to be successful. But she has a very big financial, you know, cannon shot in in her curriculum of of finances. And that has not come out till till now, till very recently, two, three years ago, well, ten years ago. But even then, you know, not everybody even knows that now. But that's the hard facts is we have to really look at, you know, the forces that were negotiating with Flagler and who had not only, you know, a bigger landmass or even solid finances, and the Brickles had both. Uh, but, and Julia Tuttle also needed the Brickles. That, you know, there is unequivocally an issue with the Orange Blossom story right. that that there was a contract with the Brickles and the Tuttles. And this was told to us 
not only by James Ingram, but by many other people. But that comma and a contract with the Brickles as well, that always gets left out. So mm. Julia, the, the, the fame, now that's later, but initially in, in my research and, and in Miami-Dade uh, Public Library, Stephanie Garcia gave me some great documents uh, of early newspapers. The, both ladies were treated equally. In fact, one says, you know, two families ahead of city roster, the pioneers. So in the early days, both were treated equally. And somewhere in the 20s and 30s, the, the story goes what I call the lone shooter theory, you know, that, 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 that it was all Julia. And then in 1958, luckily, uh, Jane Wood Reno wrote an incredible article calling Mary Brickle a mother in Miami, comma, along with Julia Tuttle, Miami's other mother. Now, this is Reno, uh, Jane, Janet Reno's mother calling uh, both of them. Oh, wow. Mothers. Wow. And you, wait a second, where did she get that? Well, yeah, got yeah. that. The early articles were pointing in that direction. So we have a, a roller coaster, by the way. It wasn't always one way or the other. Uh, you, you had both extremes. You know, but uh, mm-hmm. in the recent times, Julia has pulled ahead. So we've got a couple questions coming in, Caesar, and we're going to try to get as many as we can. So shorter responses are appreciated. Yeah. D. Okay, Wright, got it. I was thinking of becoming a nonfiction historical writer. This is a good one. What tips do you recommend to a beginner like me? Just a heads up, I'm encouraged to do this due to my dad. He, he, his family was a big deal, let's say, in my own hometown. <laughs> Uh, my biggest uh, recommendation is don't get caught up in all the documents and the citing of mm-hmm. issues that you need to cite. Step back and see the bigger picture, not only of back then, but also what it means today. Today, right. I, you know, right. teach kids, you know, I can talk blue in my face to kids about Flagler, but if I start with, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, then I'm already starting to connect him to the, you know, the world of today. And it, and it seems like a wild bridge, but the truth is, is that, you know, technology, just like technology is in Flagler's day, you know, refining oil and, and you know, needing gas for cars, was he was, you know, he and others were at the right moment of the right time. So they couldn't have made mm-hmm. what they made with mm-hmm. technology coming in. Same with someone named Mark Zuckerberg who didn't even finish college and what have you, but the technology was there, the smarts were there, the moment was there. So try to look at whatever you're writing in the context of the past and what the heck it means or what it, what it bridges to in the future. Mm, here's another one coming from Stinson. You just triggered another question, which is a great segue. He writes, he or she writes, or they, we appreciate nonfiction authors who help us preserve history and learn history. Thank you, Caesar. How can we readers and listeners get the word out? It's a good question because often we hear these stories and, and if you don't, you find them on a podcast, you find them and you see them on your local, you know, in your bookstore, but sometimes folks may not hear the entire story or may be influenced by it. Here's a good question. The questions are, how can we readers and listeners get the word out, right? And what can we get, how can we get more people to, to read good works like yours? Wow, that's a, it's kind of an easy uh, answer thanks to a T-shirt I saw somewhere this year that just says, question everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> history is so funny. Um, it never really ends. It's never really right, right, right. Um, you really have to 
if you if you hear a good story, question it. And one of the great things you can do is if you're in a town, it doesn't have to be Miami, it could be somewhere else, you could be visiting your hometown. Question the origin story of your town and ask a question of those small, you know there's a lot of small museums. Yeah. Ask them, by the way, I just went to your exhibit, it's great, this and that and the other. But let me ask you a question. Is there any controversies with anything in here? Has anybody, is there anything I'm not reading about here? Um, and the same thing is if you have a, a, a kid or a relative in school, grab their history book. See what they're saying in their history book. I had a field day with Florida history books. It's amazing how oversimplification happens because you kind of have to sometimes, but it, it gets to the point where you're just really missing the real thing. So I'd say question everything. Uh, you know, that's the way to get the word out. You know, it, it kind of, it's a little abrasive sometimes, but it's um, it's what needs to be done. I mean, yeah, it's it what does. needs to be done. Yeah. And that goes with the next question from John B. John B. writes, I think children should know more about Mary, too, especially if they live in South Florida like me. Any tips on ways to get this info out to schools? Wow. What's his name again? John B. is what, what, what the writing, the John, line, is, the John, signature is. John I, B. I have... <laughs> I have great, great news. Uh, a wonderful friend of mine, David Schoenfeld, gave our project, Orange Blossom 2.0, which is, by the way, the name of my book, but it's, it's actually becoming like a, a movement. Uh, he yeah, gave us a great tip. There will be 700 copies of a teacher's edition of the book given to all fourth grade teachers in Dade County Public Schools. I got chills from oh, saying that. Oh, wow. That is not a... Um, that's, That's nice. not a, here's the reality. Mm-hmm. In the mm-hmm. fall, teachers get back. They will have, the fourth grade teachers will have a copy of my book, particularly a teacher's edition, just to really focus on some key things. I felt it was important to take most of the politics out and, and stuff, but I, I really just wanted them to know who Mary was. And thanks to David, we have that. that, that. And that's, that, that was a big goal here. Because we can talk blue in the face we are about his, this, and that, and the other, and adults, this, but unless we get it to the kids, it's not, it's not really impactful. Mm. So yeah, mm. the first time, I think they're going to have some ammunition to, to arm them with information about Mary Brickle. Mm. I think that's phenomenal. Congratulations, by the way. Congratulations. Yeah, oh, thank you, David. <laughs> <laughs> Stacy writes the following. Good show. Caesar. And this is a good question because I've always, I have to say to our listeners, I, 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 I'm, I'm in love with the Becerra family. It's an incredible, beautiful family, incredible, uh-huh. with, with, with incredible contributions to our world. And so I'm very glad to have this question asked. You ready for it? What I'm does ready. your family think of your historical work? <laughs> do you get historical, and, where, and do you get your historical enthusiasm from your parents? Oh man, that's a funny question. I know that they 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 get it, they respect it, and uh, but it's a little weird, you know. I I right now in my house is a collection in their house, a collection mm-hmm. of, of thousands and thousands, and I, that's not a typo either of artifacts because I'm I'm along with the the book I'm I've created this commemorative crate for the 125th anniversary of Miami. And there's going to be like 30 objects in this crate. 
Well, 30 wow. times 125, so cool. there's a lot of things here uh, being shipped to the house and special things to put special things in before you present them in the crates themselves. So it can be a lot. You know, I mean, we, we started our, our evening here with Zoom, and you, you thought behind me was a green screen. Oh. But no. Folks, if you could see this. Four-foot-wide letters, one written by Mary Brickle and the other written by Jane Woodrino about Mary Brickle. So it, it, it's Amazing. kind of insane. I, I, I literally am, 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 am drowning in a beautiful sea of Brickle everything <laughs> and, and history. Um, you know, I think, you know, it's, I have a different brand of, of, you know, they would, I think they would love for me to just, you know, go and teach a particular class at a particular school forever and ever and ever. And I have taught at FYU and I have taught at Miami Dade, uh, you know, Dade College. And, and, but, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just like, I like my freedom to go off and, and, and research things. So, um, so I think, I think they think hopefully it'll lead to some tenured professorship someday. <laughs> <laughs> and Caesar, I have to share, we're coming down to the last few minutes of this segment. And folks, if you, haven't heard the entire segment, that's okay, because you can catch this episode in several spaces, by the way. We're going to, it's all, always available on everydayfolksradio.com. You can visit our website. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play as well. And soon Spotify. Spotify's coming up in the next few days as well. And, of course, on our dear friends at the SoFlow Weird Show podcast. We're going to make this active there as well and support that podcast, too. Great stuff. I am a, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan already, and I'm super excited. And Caesar, thank you so much for being here. Where? What's next? What's next? Now you have Orange Blossom. You're, I'm sure you're hitting the tour scene. You're going to be hitting more podcasts and other functions. Yeah. What's next for you in the project? Is there any little taste that you can give us very briefly of what's coming up lot, with Orange Blossom or up. even beyond it? <laughs> a lot coming A lot of work coming up uh, that uh, – Mia and her daughter Michelle is taking the, the, the brunt of, of getting the word out and organizing, you know, talks, etc. On the 28th of July, when the book comes out on the 125th mm-hmm. anniversary, uh, launches uh, six events, one every day. It's a it's a real strong start, uh, including, oh, uh, you know, a month from the end of those six days, there'll be uh, mm-hmm. an exhibit, the uh, Museum of the Everglades, about the the Brickles that will travel, and it'll come to FIU in the future. But I, I, I think it's going to be just the beginning when the book comes out. I think it's hopefully going to be a strong year of getting out. I'm open. Listen, everybody, if you have a group, no matter how small, I love, actually, I love the smaller the better. Less is more. Uh, invite me. I'd love to come over and tell you the fuller story of, of all this. Uh, I love talking. In fact, my best gift, I think, is talking in front of a group. Uh, and I'm going to have to do a lot of that because, uh, you know, there's, it's still overwhelming how much is online, uh, you know, that doesn't talk about Mary. So I hope the tide turns. Um, there's a lot of future projects in the works, uh, more books on other topics. But right now, just Mary. <laughs> thank you, Caesar, And we want to thank all of our listeners for listening to our live podcast here on Everyday Folks Radio titled BJ Speaks, a conversation with Caesar Abacera. And again, we will be archiving this, this, this show. It'll be available on all of our media feeds and our RSS feeds, all alike. And also, we're going to be adding Caesar's book and a, a link to the SoFlow Weird Show podcast. That you can also pre order the book and also camp on to the SoFlow Weird Show podcast. 
Tune in live for our next show on June 4th, where we'll have more exciting stuff. Visit everydayfolksradio.com. You can see our lineup. Until next time, thank you, everyone, and take care.